Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, you are listening to On the Environment, a podcast production from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm Aaron Rubin, a research assistant at Yale, and I'm in the studio today with Rolling Stone contributing editor Jeff Godell. Jeff is the author of the best-selling book, Big Coal, The Dirty Secret Behind America's Energy Future, and he's in town to serve as the keynote speaker for this year's New Directions in Environmental Law Conference at Yale. His most recent book is an investigation into the controversial science of geoengineering, titled How to Cool the Planet, Geoengineering and the Audacious Quest to Fix Earth's Climate. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. This is the second of three podcasts that we'll be doing. Thanks for having me. Jeff, I wanted to talk a little bit about your role as an environmental journalist, and in particular, to start things off, I'm interested in your path towards writing about the environment. Your early work focused on crime, Silicon Valley, entrepreneurship, the pursuit of power. I'm wondering, is is your new focus on climate and energy an outgrowth of that, or is this a fundamentally new thing for you? Well, I grew up in Silicon Valley, uh, worked at Apple Computer in the early days, um, you know, never uh, all, you know, chronicled the rise of digital technology, you know, early days of the Mac, the Internet, Netscape, all that kind of stuff as a journalist. And I, but I never like thought about where those electrons come from, the power, all that yeah. stuff. It, it never even occurred to me. And it wasn't until um, just after George W. Bush was uh, elected the first time, um, and they launched the uh, now infamous uh, Bush-Cheney Energy Plan, which um, uh, really was the beginning of the comeback of coal and oil and things like that in America. Um, a, an editor at the New York Times Magazine called me up and, and said, Jeff, um, uh, I think coal's going to be big, you know, with the, under the Bush Energy, uh, energy Plan. Uh, why don't you go to West Virginia and write about the comeback of the coal industry? And I had this little like pause I didn't say anything but there was a little bubble above my head that said like what coal industry I didn't know we burned coal in America I had no wow. idea but of course I didn't say that to him I said sure I'd love to go down there uh, so I plunged into I went to West Virginia and plunged into it as a journalist um, but I went into it with complete ignorance about you know coal industry how any of this works um, simply with this sort of um, interest in a good story mm-hmm. and and I had an instinct of understanding that this was important because I knew how important electricity was, but like because because of my Silicon Valley right. background, but like most Americans, I had no idea where electricity comes from. You know that, that famous story about electricity flowing out of electricity trees, you know, out of the sky or some or some golden bowl up yeah, there. Yeah, we it's, never it just, we never see it. It just dribbles down somehow. Um, but I, I I went to some mountaintop removal mines. I visited some big power plants, and I was like, oh my god! It was like I'd wandered into the world of the orcs, uh, you know, this sort yeah. of underground um, industrial America, and it fascinated me. I wrote. I spent four months or three months working on uh, what turned out to be a very big story. It was a cover story for the New York Times magazine, and it really launched me into the subject. And it, and, and from there, you know, it brought up all that brought up all kinds of interesting questions for me. Um, and I eventually pursued it in a book, Big Coal. But that's what got me involved in thinking about climate and things like that, because obviously if you are going to think about climate, the first thing you have to think about is what to do about coal, and because uh, it's you know by far the most carbon-intensive fossil fuel. 
And, you know, I just began looking at that, spending a lot of time with scientists and gradually uh, understanding the scale of, of the problem. Um, I was talking to um, Al Gore a couple of weeks ago for um, a story. We did a, I did an interview with him in Tennessee. And he was talking about how people, when they start to research this and think about this, at a certain point they have, when they think about climate and the consequences, they have what he called the oh shit moment of like realizing what this really means in a sort of visceral way. And I had that kind of oh shit moment um, uh, somewhere along the line. Standing it, on a mountaintop that had been removed. And well, no, it, was, it, was, it wasn't that. It was more like um, the mountaintops that was one thing. But I, I, with the climate stuff... Um, I think it was actually getting to know the scientists, looking at paleoclimatology, mm -hmm. looking at different sea level rises in the past, and understanding uh, kind of how fragile the civilization that we have here really is, even though uh, on some levels it's quite resilient, a lot of it is quite fragile. And um, uh, it, it, it just, you know, as a journalist, I just realized, oh my God, this is a huge story. What, how is this, what are we, we, meaning human beings, going to do about this? So I have sort of never looked back. How was the reception to Big Coal? Was there a lot of pushback, or did it sort of propel you forward? Uh, well, well, there wasn't a lot of pushback from the industry, which I was surprised. I think that uh, I was prepared for a lot of um, criticism from the industry, but they did the opposite, which I think <laughs> was actually sort of smart. Um, you know, they were basically very quiet about it. I mean, it got a lot of reviews and things like that, but they didn't, you know, push back to me. Um, in private, they did some way, you know, when I would, uh, I had debates with coal industry executives and I would talk to them there or at uh, meetings in Washington or just in the hallways, I would hear things from them. But uh, there was no public pushback from them. I'm curious if you found in your discussions with them that you fundamentally agreed on the nature of problems or if they saw things from a radically different point of view. Well, you know, there's different levels of, of when you talk about the industry, when you talk about big coal, it's easy in a conversation like this to lump everyone right. together. And, Many you know, I, I grew up in a blue collar family. Um, so when I went to coal mines, uh, road railroads, um, went to coal plants, I really loved the guys, and mostly guys. There were some women, but mm -hmm. I say guys because it really was. It still is a very male dominated industry. Um, we got along really well. And I met a lot of people who work at big power plants and in coal mines who understand what climate change is and understand how, how, how um, dangerous it is, the risks that we face. But they also have a family to feed and they need a job. And they have a pretty good job working at this coal plant or in this mine. And they're not going to sacrifice that just you know because they know that coal is going to come out of there anyway and they need to feed their family. And so, they provide a service. Right, they provide electricity. You know, I mean, we're using it right now. Exactly. So, um, so I, on that level, you know, I got along great with a lot of the people that I write about in the industry. I think the problem is when you get to the management and executive yeah, that's level. That's what I was thinking about. Right, where you have lobbyists, where you have political pressure, ideology driving things. You know, I I met a lot of coal industry executives who I think are uh, quite cynical that hmm. really understand that that. For example, burning coal increases the risk of and consequences of climate change. But to hell with it; they won't be around to see it. Although now they probably will, but because it's yeah. happening so much faster than we thought. But you know, just to basically cynical. I've got a business to run. I need to show bottom line profits. You know, I'm not really here to think about the greater good of the planet. It's not my job, right? I'd like to talk a little bit about your writing process. 
What are the steps you take from having an idea to writing a full book? Is it very methodical or is it more organic? Well, this is one of the blessings of being a magazine journalist. Um, It really helps. Um, And there aren't very many places left. Magazine journalism is in such decline. Um, But I'm still blessed to be at Rolling Stone and New York Times Magazine where I can do, I can spend three or four months writing quite long stories and and try them out. Um, So both of my recent books came out of magazine stories. Um, uh, so in the case of the big calls I mentioned, I spent three or four months looking into the industry. The piece came out, it got very good reception. Everyone said, oh my God, there's so much, you know. This it's is a big a, story. Big story, isn't there a whole lot more you can do? Talk to my editors, they're immediately like, yes, great. Um, and, and I was off. And a kind of similar thing happened with the geoengineering book, although that was a little bit trickier, but it started as a profile of a, um, engineer in uh, that I wrote for Rolling Stone, a very colorful character named Lowell Wood. Uh, and that was uh, very fascinating and got a good reception, and I realized, oh, there's a book in this also. Um, but that doesn't mean the process of actually writing the book isn't, you know, incredibly tortuous right, and, right. you know, long and difficult and balancing all the information. I mean, it's just hard. I mean, there's just no way that writing, and anyone who says that writing a book isn't hard is an amateur. I mean, it's sometimes, you know, novelists can have those moments of flow and things. But for a journalist, it's just hard work, especially on a big, complex, technical, political story like something about energy. Or, and how do you make that accessible to, you know, you don't obviously want to make it accessible to, um, you don't want to dumb it down too much. But on the other hand, you want it to be readable. You want right. people and, to be able and to. And interesting and, and uh, connect with people in a way that, Right. It resonates in some way. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, I have various strategies for trying to do that, one of which is to focus a lot on the human characters mm-hmm. um, to the degree that I can. Also to try to give it some kind of the book, some kind of a narrative. Um, so, example, in the coal book, I tried to structure the book around the sort of life cycle of coal so that the early chapters are about mining and then it goes into the burning and then it goes into the consequences of the burning and then climate. So it has a kind of arc of the actual sort of life cycle of coal. And then the geoengineering book, the animating idea was, you know, geoengineering is this idea of large-scale manipulation of the Earth's climate in order to, uh, you know, cool it off, to offset global warming. It's kind of a wild idea that we can talk more about, but um, and the, the organizing principle of that book was, you know, uh, are these people who are thinking about this nuts? Are they crazy? <laughs> Which is still, it's a very good question. And um, so that became the animating thing. So I went through and wrote about some of the people that I met who were thinking seriously about this, who are quite great scientists. And, you know, basically came to the conclusion, no, they're not nuts. But Yeah, I remember but, reading and feeling like that's a very compelling transition. Right. Because as most readers pick up the book are probably going to agree with your initial stance. Like, right. This is crazy. Really, we're going to launch thousands of mirrors into space. Right. And and then you talk with, with really good scientists who say like, yeah, maybe this is something we'll have to do, not now, but we want to be able to do it if we need to. Exactly. Yeah. The, um, the research for How to Cool the Planet seems like it took years. It was a long project. Do you? I'm curious how you try to fund those, those sort of yearly things. You just do it on the <laughs> side? Do you get like big sponsors or do you have to scrap it together? No, I mean, I don't have sponsors. I mean, I am lucky to have a job as a magazine journalist. Um, 
So that gives me, you know, the income for that. And then, you know, I need to get a big enough book advance to fund the book, you know. So um, I'm lucky to uh, have sold enough books and to have enough of a reputation as a writer that I can go to a main publisher, mainstream publisher. And, you know, I'm certainly not going to get rich off of this, but I can get a big enough advance to finish it, to, to do the book. Yeah. I mean, if I can't get it, then um, I can't do the book. I mean, uh, uh, it ha- this is a, a, a job for me, yeah. you know, and I don't do these books, um, you know, for free. Um, um, right. And you want it to be sustainable for the right, next book. Right. Um, well, I don't want to talk about the decline of journalism, but I'm curious if you have any advice for young environmental journalists or people starting out in the field is, are there any missteps you took that we can avoid? Any things we should make sure we do? Well, first of all, I wanted to correct with something when you said I, I'm not. I don't think that there's a decline in journalism per se. Okay. I think there's a decline in magazine journalism, just in the, because magazines are going out of business because of you know the internet and because of digital media. It's sort of an old form, and our reading habits are changing. I actually think I'm incredibly hopeful about journalism right now. I think it's a really exciting time. It's just not an exciting time if you want to be the kind of writer who does 20,000-word magazine stories for The New Yorker or Rolling Stone. Because right, it's changing. It's changing so dramatically. So the kind of things that I got going in journalism were, um, you know, I started out as a cop reporter um, writing about drugs and AIDS in New York City, things like that. And, you know, went up, came up this sort of old-fashioned way, which was sort of narrative nonfiction storytelling, you know, writing longish magazine feature stories. Um and those grew into jobs at to a job at Rolling Stone, where I've been for 18 years and uh, doing a lot of stuff for the New York Times Magazine and others. That's a hard road now, though, yeah, uh, because those places don't really uh, need more writers, and uh, there, you know, there's only a, a couple, of, really, a couple of publications left in America that does long-form narrative journalism. Everything is obviously moving online. Um, but within that, though, there's a ton of opportunities. I mean, it's just it's a very exciting moment because the whole uh, idea of how do you do good, hard hitting journalism in this with these new forms is being explored. And so um, it's not a moment where you are going to instantly make a lot of money or mm-hmm. something like that. But um, as far as learning the craft and pushing the boundaries of what's been done, there's a lot of people looking for writers and, and reporters and journalists who can do new things, who know how to work in this medium, who uh, have fresh ideas about how to structure a story. Um, and when something works, it gets a ton of access because it gets you know goes viral. And Right, uh, everyone can deal. read it the next day. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really, you know, I'm not hopeful about some of the institutions that are around, but I, I really think that, you know, I'm a, a kind of big believer in citizen journalism and, and what an individual can do. Um, even things like what, what Andrew Sullivan, Sullivan is doing, mm-hmm. you know, trying to make his site sustainable, has, you know, um, setting up his own sort of paywall for this, seeing if he can entice a readership who likes what he's, what he's writing on his um, site to actually just pay for it, you know, a, a small amount every month. And it seems to be working. So, I mean, I think there's new kinds of models that are... That are yeah, that and the are, people who are making it work, they're doing well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, it's a great moment. It's just not a great moment if you've got, you know, three kids and a yeah. big mortgage and you, need, and you need a traditional kind of job. But for someone coming out of school uh, or someone, you know, who's just looking for a way to um, experiment, um, I think it's really great. It's a good time. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me.